Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So, a little bit of inside baseball for you guys. So, Bill and I normally tape together. Bill's uh, out in New Hampshire. Uh, they're both out today. We're, we're all doing this remotely. One of their names is Billy Joe Bob, and the other's name is COVID-19 on the <laughs> software that we use. <laughs> this is what you have to put Dude. up with on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> if you're not here, I can't keep track of you. You're like small children. Yeah, this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, hi, guys. It's uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muff from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. If you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Just search for Barstool Politics on there. Uh, the podcast, uh, you can share or like or comment or do whatever the hell you want uh, through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, SoundCloud, SoundCloud um, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com. Uh, a direct link will be on all of our social channels. Uh, so check that out. Bill is currently wearing his uh, his Barstool Politics uh, hoodie uh, out in, you're in Colorado, correct, Bill? Yeah, I was walking around Breckenridge, Colorado today, showing it off. A lot of thumbs up. I think people are really, really digging the, <laughs> the logo. <laughs> Anyways, look for that on there. Some t-shirts, uh, a mug. Uh, we'll be adding more stuff as time goes on. Um, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of interesting things to cover today. Um, kind of shocking Super Tuesday results, in my opinion. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID-19, of course, um, uh, Afghanistan and, uh, and a bunch of other things. And the fact that, uh, Joe Biden can't tell his wife or his sister apart. Um, but you know, we'll save that for later. Um, Bill, uh, big thing, Super Tuesday, somehow, Biden came back from the dead, which I'm not super pleased about, but it should make for some fun debates um, when he doesn't know where he is. Um, can you give us a breakdown of uh, what the hell just happened? Of course, Nick. It was a, it was a, sure was a super, super Tuesday. So um, <laughs> more than 1,300 delegates were up for grabs across 14 states, including the two states that award the most delegates, California and Texas. While Sanders did win California, the evening's clear winner was Joe Biden. It was a stunning comeback for a candidate who was seen as largely done after the opening three contests in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. In total, Biden won 10 of the 15 primary contests at stake, pulling off a number of upset victories, including Minnesota, Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren's home state, and Texas, Phil's home state. Uh, most notably, Biden performed well in states where he wasn't even really competing or spending any campaign money. Sanders, on the other hand, did not have a great evening. He won Colorado, Utah, Vermont, and likely California, but largely underperformed expectations. It is also important to note that a ma- uh, note the major shakeup last week when both Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar suspended their campaign campaigns and immediately endorsed Joe Biden. They were formed by uh, joined by former Texas Rep Beto O'Rourke. In what sure does appear to be like a coordinated campaign to stall Bernie Sanders' march to the nomination. Oh, and this morning, Bloomberg's attempt to the Biden election didn't work as he also dropped out and announced he was supporting Biden. So many angles and so much to break down. Phil, last week we debated whether Bernie Sanders was unstoppable. This week, things look very, very different. Where do you want to start? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it makes sense to talk to start by talking about Joe Biden, I think. I mean, this was this was a, a it's going to say remarkable, really kind of an unprecedented turnaround. I mean, he was after Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada, he was clinging to life. And then South Carolina gives him this big, uh, 
big bump. And yeah, to see what he did, it was what was amazing is, is not it, it was shocking how well he did, how many states he won. And what it seems pretty apparent is that it, it all kind of happened in the last few days. I mean, with 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 uh, Pete and Klobuchar dropping out. But then when you look at the exit polls, um, people weren't just deciding in the last week. They were deciding the day of. And those voters went overwhelmingly for Biden. Um, Across the board in in like all of the states, the numbers, it was like 60, 20. It was stunning uh, that this this broad pattern. Arguably, Biden would have done even better if it weren't for early voting. And I mean, the, the states where there wasn't early voting were the places where he had the biggest surprises, the, you know, in the Massachusetts and places like that. So California, part of the argument about why he uh, he did better in California than was it, than he was expected to do. But if there hadn't been early voting, if people hadn't been mailing in ballots for weeks now, he probably would have done even better and probably will close the gap even closer than it currently is as people who mailed their ballots in at the last minute start getting counted. Um, I, what to make of all of that is is sort of an interesting question. I'm kind of curious what what you all think of that. I mean, I, the, the narrative for a long time was that there was this progressive lane and this sort of moderate lane. And it seems to me more like there is the kind of the the core Democrat, the sort of institutional lane and the Bernie kind of tear it down lane. And we had talked about how there's a or we had speculated that there maybe there was a ceiling on Bernie's support. I mean, he's continued to get sort of 30 ish percent. And as other people have dropped out, that hasn't Bernie hasn't built or expanded that base. And so Biden is benefiting from that. The other story that I, I think is, and, and I'll shut up and let you talk. Um, uh, the other story is that the turnout was massively high, which mm-hmm. Biden doesn't strike me as a particularly exciting candidate. But for the turnout to be this high and for people to be that strongly behind Biden says something. I, I You know, the people have drawn parallels to whether this is a John Kerry type moment, this kind of, you know, blah candidate that's coming in. But I see it all, in some ways, I kind of wonder if it will play out like the 2016 election in reverse and that Hillary was such an unpopular candidate that it pushed people to Trump. And I wonder if people are so tired of Trump that it sort of, they that vanilla is what they want. Right. Joe Biden is people are excited about it because he, there is no drama. Right. They just want they want to not have to think about it and they want Trump out of office. Democrats had to be really happy with yesterday with turnout and, and whatnot. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think the, there's a lot to break down there. I think maybe starting with turnout, you know, for me, Bernie has been making this argument that part of the strength of his candidacy is that he can turn out a new generation of voters, that young people will show up. People who have been disillusioned with the process are going to show out, show up, and he's going to build this, you know, this, this wave or this wall. And that didn't happen. And, and even today, Bernie did a press conference where he acknowledged that uh, young people did not, sh- you know, they're growing a little bit, but basically turnout for young people was awful, as it always is. Mm-hmm. And the real growth and turnout was uh, with suburbanites supporting Biden and again with the African-American community. That's the, the those are the two groups that showed up in mass uh, and young people, again, fitting the pattern, did not show up. And that's got to scare the Biden campaign. I'm sorry, the, the Sanders campaign. We, I think last week or the week before, we we talked briefly about how people who f- are the strongest supporters of Bernie are also the in the demographic of people least likely to vote. And the, and the people who are the most likely to vote are the ones who are, are Biden people. And that, you know, whether that's there's all sorts of problems with that. Right. Young people should be getting out and voting. It's not great to have elections determined by people over the age of 60. But if that's the way it is, then this is going to be how it plays out. Mm-hmm. It's um, when I when um, Klobuchar and Buttigieg uh, suspended their campaigns practically at the same time, um, that was a little troubling to me. I think the results would have been markedly um, different had they stayed in the race. While I think that there's there is some poll uh, or there there still is a, a pretty big differentiation between the uh, core democratic base and this progressive wing that is supposedly gaining more and more support. I feel like the timing of this suggests that the, the DNC decided to artificially put a, a cap on the, um, uh, the possibility of having more uh, people, not even more people, um, but um, 
diluting the effectiveness of that centrist democratic base. Um, taking Klobuchar and Buttigieg out of the mix uh, really didn't give people much of an option. You have a, an exceptionally centrist candidate in, compar- in comparison to everybody else, or your other option is Sanders. And realistically, if uh, Sanders isn't bringing out the youth vote, and what remains are people who are motivated that either don't like Trump or are, mo- are more likely to vote in the first place, what options do you have? Like, I, I, you know, I, I, I completely understand why they would do that. And, you know, the party is, is scared for its survival, given what has happened over the past few months. But I don't think this necessarily bodes well for what happens with the progressive movement going forward. You already see this kind of conspiracy theory rhetoric uh, being put forward by Sanders and other elements of the Democratic Party who feel like their voices are being stifled again. Um, you know, four years later, uh, almost in the exact same way. And I, I, I think I, it's, it's not going to help them in the long run. I, I really think they should have kept one of the other candidates in there. Well, it's interesting because it, it depends on the perspective there. Like, wow, I, I would like to know more about why Buttigieg and Klobuchar left at the time they did. Did Biden reach out to them? Did the DNC reach out? What were the nature of, the, of those conversations? And why did they find them so compelling? Because you know, nobody had to force Buttigieg or Klobuchar uh, to resign and then instantly endorse endorse Biden. Right. There was there must have been some sort of consensus or acknowledgement. They maybe agreed. I mean, the, the behind the scenes there would be really fascinating because it, it also suggests that Biden is able to do that. Right. Biden was able to get those two challengers to to resign and basically endorse him. So it's you know, it speaks to the ability of, of, of the Biden campaign and maybe him to persuade some of those individuals that it's time to move on. But, yeah, totally fascinating development. And uh, none of that. I this is I, it, it is an interesting challenge moving forward. I mean, I, I've you know, I've had conversations with students. I've seen these conversations going on online about, you know, how much the DNC is inter- intervening. I, I don't tend to see it as nefarious, even if they were in some I mean. The, the ability to intervene, in my mind, is limited, right? The, the reason why this played out the way it did is at least it, it couldn't have gone this way without South Carolina, in which people just showed up to vote for Biden in overwhelming numbers. Um, and, and so it's, it's a response to, uh, I mean, this is politics, right? It's a response to the way people are voting. It's deal-making behind the scenes. And, and I, I don't know, I, I, I still, I think... Um, you know, Bernie has built his campaign on attacking the Democratic Party, uh, which appeals to some people. But the majority of Democratic Party voters like the party that they're a part of. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit like going on a job interview and showing up at the interview and talking about how everything about this place is shit. And then if you don't hire me, you're you know, you're biased against me or whatever. So I, there's a there's a weird dynamic there. But I think you're both of you are, are right are getting at this thing. There has to be some sort of bridging of that. Um, you know, at some point, Sanders supporters have to for the Democrats to be successful. Sanders supporters need to get on board with whoever Biden. I mean, it, it still could be Sanders. Right. I mean, this is not this is we've we've talked well, about right. the inevitability of the winning candidate, you know, and it's changed every week for three weeks. So it could still be Sanders. But if it is Biden. Um, the, you know, Sanders supporters, the Democratic Party needs Sanders supporters to get on on board and there needs to be some sort of outreach to them. And, and that, that will be interesting to see how that plays out. It's also really close to how all this happened. You know, when when things roll around and it's the general election, things will feel a little different um, than they do right now when your candidate, you know, has, has had a bad a bad run. It feels to me yesterday felt a lot. I saw a lot of parallels back to 2016. And what what Bernie is trying to do in many ways is is some parallels to what Trump tried to do. So Trump ran against the establishment uh, throughout the, the, the Republican primary. They did everything they could to stop Trump. They couldn't stop him because the voters were on board with Trump as the nominee. Bernie's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to fight against the Democratic establishment to win the nomination. And what we saw yesterday is that the Democratic Party and, and voters in particular are not fully ready for that yet. Uh, and that Bernie is hasn't been able to grab hold of the Democratic Party in the way that Trump did. Um, and I think that suggests that the the Democrats are, there's still a huge section of that party that's centrist, that is moderate, that is not, you know, there certainly is the Bernie and the, and the Warren wings that are more progressive, but there's a lot of moderate voters within the Democratic Party who aren't ready to let somebody like Sanders grab hold of the party. 
Mm-hmm. And and the the one interesting difference, I, I think you were talking about the comparison to to last go round with the Republicans. The the Republicans were never able to do what it appears the Democrats did in the last week, which is yes. you know you had you had what well, it was Rubio and Bush and who else? Am I was it Ted Cruz still in it at that point? There were three or yeah, four who, who none none of them would could be convinced to get out of the other's way. If if something like this had happened then, right? If Rubio and Cruz had pulled out and, and endorsed Bush or Bush, you know, whatever, you would have had probably a consolidating, uh, you know, consolidation of votes around a more mainstream candidate, um, which is what political science expects to see happen, right? The, the whole idea of the party decides that these sort of elites within the party uh, are able to sort of cooperate and work together in ways, um, and it didn't happen for them. Uh, and and it and I don't. I, you sort of wonder if that lesson was on the minds of a Buttigieg and a Klobuchar, Klobuchar and others. So I, I mean, in that same vein, um, I, I think there was a significant effort on the part of the Republicans to try and stifle Trump. Maybe not in the sense of the candidates themselves, but certainly in the part of uh, the RNC. Um, I guess my point is that regardless of what they did and whatever steps that they took, there was no stopping Trump once he had the momentum behind him. This feels more artificial because Biden doesn't have that personality. He doesn't have that groundswell of support. He's just the the lesser of two evils, which just suggests to me that he's a lesser candidate. Like, I'm not sure he has the the um, emotional support of the Democrats to be as effective as Trump was four years ago with the Republicans. I, I think that's spot on because you think about, so some of the exit polls showed that for a high percentage of voters, it wasn't necessarily ideology. It was it was wanting to defeat Donald Trump. That when you think about what is this election for Democrats about? Is it about healthcare? Is it about you know a variety of issues that, that we've been debating on the left? Or is it about ending the Trump presidency. And I think we saw yesterday for a lot of voters, it was about ending the Trump presidency. They're not necessarily in love with Biden, but they think that Biden allows, gives them the greatest chance to win. Uh, and it gives them the greatest chance of uh, holding onto the House and maybe taking the Senate. So it was very strategic voting. They're not in love with Biden the way they were in love with, with Obama. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're right, Nick. It's, it's, there are some different, but really important parallels. It is, it is where in a normal election, a, a, a quote unquote boring candidate probably wouldn't be a great choice. But if, if that is the case, if the concern is about beating Trump, I could see a, you know, a, a vanilla candidate doing really well because everyone can sort of get behind it. Now we'll see whether that actually plays out or not. Right. First of all, we don't know, again, we don't know if Biden's going to end up with the nomination, but if he does, uh, it will be a really interesting test because the the more vanilla candidates that in the past, when Democrats have run the sort of vanilla candidates, they haven't done well. It's the really sort of inspiring, dynamic candidates that have done well. But this is a weird year, right? I mean, this is I, we you haven't ever had a, a, a an election really with the sort of tone and and the the sort of opposition to Trump that that we have uh, this year. I, I I don't know that like old predictions necessarily hold or old you know observations necessarily predict what's going to happen this time Mm -hmm. i i mean i think he would be honestly more effective if he was just kind of the milquetoast candidate but the second that these results come out you start seeing clips of him talking to beto o'rourke and how he's gonna handle the the uh the gun control issue the guy Mm -hmm. who wants to forcibly confiscate people's guns like it's all you have to do is just shut the fuck up for a few weeks and just let this blow over. Don't start thinking that, you know, you're the anointed one and that you can do no wrong, which well, I, I think, think, again, they didn't learn that lesson the last time. Well, and I think we also have to be careful, too. But I think, Phil, as you noted earlier, last week, it was all we were assuming that it was going to be Bernie. This week, everybody's saying it's now Biden. And there's a lot left of this campaign. It's probably going to go back and forth. No matter what happens, it looks like neither... Bernie or Biden are going to be able to get a majority of the delegates at this point. It's likely at at most a plurality unless we see a major change. So we're still potentially heading toward a brokered convention. So there's so much more to play out. But, 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 you know, no doubt that this is far beyond what Biden could have hoped for a week ago. It is is amazing how he was basically done for. And then in a two day period, suddenly he's like the the presumed candidate. It's it's kind of crazy how quickly that can change. And again, we've talked about this before with, you know, uh, it, I, 
that that's that's a in some ways that's problematic, right? It should people shouldn't be switching their votes at the last second. It, it, some of that is people trying to be strategic about their vote, um, which maybe is is smart. But yeah, I, I don't know what to make of the 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 dramatic swing that just occurred. What, what do you guys think of so Bloomberg? You know, I I, uh, I was kind of surprised this morning. I, I know it was a terrible day for him yesterday. Uh, I mean, I guess he won American Samoa. That's about it. But other mm-hmm. than that, uh, <laughs> I, I still thought he might stick around for a while. The guy's half a billion dollars in. Let this play out a little bit longer. Uh, that he 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 suspended his campaign and then instantly was going Joe Biden. Were you were you surprised and shocked by that? Yeah. I, I mean, if it was if it was me and I had to take a, a, a half a billion dollar bath on my own campaign that I ran for what was it a hundred days something like that, um, yeah, I'd be a little bit upset. But I guess if you have sixty five seventy billion, it's not that big of a deal. On top of that, I, this is where I, I know you guys don't see the the um, you know the threads between the different things, the conspiracy theory behind all this, but. The fact that it immediately, the conversation turns to, well, I'm going to bankroll the Democratic Party going forward and the election going forward is exceptionally problematic to me. You have effectively unlimited funds to run this race now that is being controlled by a single individual um, who was up until this point a candidate who was only responsible to himself. I, I I, I have a severe problem with that. Oh, I, I there's there's all sorts of problems with a billionaire being able to just throw hundreds of millions of dollars at whatever he wants. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I'm with you. I have problems with it too. I mean, he the 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 you know the positive way to interpret it is that he said all along that he was going to support whoever the nominee was and would continue. Sure. To pay his staff, regardless of who the nomination was, he was going to continue to basically fund this 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 campaign. Um, I think for him, it's convenient that it ended up being Biden. I, I think it brings up. I, I'm a little surprised that he dropped out because the you know he, he the money is not an issue, um, but. I sort of think that that maybe the thing that I mean, part of what brought him in was a concern over a, a Democratic Party that was going that was drifting towards Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren. Right. And so if you get to the point where it's clear that that Elizabeth Warren's out, essentially, and, and Bernie, you know, Biden has sort of surged ahead of Bernie. I, I could I see him feeling comfortable stepping away and saying, all right, I'm going to throw money behind Biden now because this is that I, I got what I wanted um mm-hmm. that it wasn't necessarily a vanity i need to be president it was you know he wanted to prov- to to i to occupy that that sort of moderate lane um because he thought that was the way to go and so if if biden is surging he doesn't need to do that anymore maybe that's overly generous of me um but i i mean i think that you know he can he can have his 62 billion dollars to console him in his life <laughs> oh and, and it's going to have a major impact right i mean if he wants to play nice with the democrats and continue to fund this his network that he established you know my son and i fisher we were talking about the network he has across the country it's better than biden's network the mm-hmm. people there are better because he was paying these people more than he was than biden was paying him so if if he can start his own super PAC and support Biden. This is this allows the Democrats to level the playing field with Trump right now, who's coming in loaded with all sorts of cash. And, and you're both right. It's it's terrible that this is what it's going to come down to. But Bloomberg and his ad team is is really good at going after Trump. Uh, and so if you're a Democrat, you have to be a bit happy about Bloomberg getting out. And if he's, he's willing to play ball with the Democrats and Biden. This could be a major, major factor. I mean, even today, I, I sent you guys the tweet where this morning Trump was trolling uh, Bloomberg, and then Bloomberg responded by sending a clip of Obi Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader their epic battle. Right? I mean, he's just they. This is they're they're very good at advertising. That guy has never at- watched Star Wars in his entire <laughs> no. life. No, but he, he pays a lot of twenty year olds a lot of money to do that. <laughs> well, I, I, think right. I, I think you're right. I might. I don't. I you know. I'm. I, I don't. I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding from is is that it's pretty easy to roll your campaign over into essentially a, a pack, and so yeah, it would be. And and this is you know that you're right. The thing that Biden that sorry that Bloomberg has done well is the attack on on Trump. And even if his ads never mention Joe Biden, if all they do is attack Trump and criticize Trump, that will be a huge a huge yeah. uh, uh, thing for the Democrats to have moving forward. Mm-hmm. 
Where does where does Elizabeth Warren go from here? I mean, home. do we expect her home? <laughs> she can't. She lost home. She's not even welcome <laughs> back in Massachusetts. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I I do feel for her a bit because I mean, she grabbed a lot of Democratic Democrats' hearts, um, and this has got to just be devastating. There's there's no path forward for her. I mean. Yeah, she she I mean, she's done like, you know, all the news today is that she's considering her options, but she's got to you know, it doesn't make sense to continue at this point. She would make a perfect sense as a cabinet choice moving forward. She's smart. She knows her stuff like you you put her in the cabinet as a whatever. I don't know, secretary of treasury or, you know, whatever. I don't know what that would be. Um, the problem, oh God, is, no, please, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. Make her a cabinet or education. Secretary. But here's the problem with that is that Massachusetts has a Republican governor right now. And what the Democrats desperately need is a control of the Senate. And so if you move her into a cabinet position, you allow a Republican governor to to uh, to appoint a new senator from Massachusetts. And so I sort of think that she's you know, she's done. Um, I don't think she's done long term. uh, But yeah, the, the logical choice would be to move her into the cabinet. But I don't think that makes sense in this in this case. So I think she she finished. She goes back to being a senator. She's young enough. <laughs> She's 70. Yeah. Right. But obviously being 74 is not a ban on you running for president. No, she's There's got at least two more cycles. Left, right. Every candidate left in the race right now is 97. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tulsi's still in. Tulsi's still sticking around. I mean, she's the, you know, the, she even the picked point. up a delegate, right? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it'll be really, I, I, my guess is that she'll wait uh, another week or so and then eventually suspend her campaign. And then the really, maybe the more important question is whether she throws her support behind Bernie or Biden. And I could, I could see an argument for either. Uh, I know a lot of Bernie supporters have, have attacked her pretty viciously online. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's going to sway her one way or the other. I think her and Bernie are good friends. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. This may come down to whether Bernie or Biden are better at this political game. I think we have to give Biden some credit for what happened this last week about being able to mobilize the Democratic Party behind them. And Nick, you're right that there, it does feel a little conspiratorial, but it's also just it's also politics. Sure. And and Bernie sucks at that. Bernie doesn't have a lot of friends. And I don't even know if, if Elizabeth Warren will be one of his friends. There's something to be said about that. When you think about the job description of president, it's not, you know, they're not a legislator, right? They're, they're trying to, they're trying to work Congress to get stuff through. They're trying to, you know, they are an executor. And so there's something about the ability of Joe Biden to sort of make phone calls and get stuff done um, that says that maybe he would be good at this in a way that Bernie as a purist, right? This is, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to stick to these, these uh, principles that I have. Uh, it could be could be more problematic. I mean, the fact that that Ber- that Biden can pick up a call, a phone, and uh, and call, you know, Buttigieg, and I, who knows what happened? Did he promise them anything? Who knows? But if he yeah. did, right, that's the political game, right? The ability to get things done. I, I I I I think you guys are giving him way too much credit. I think this was done from DNC leadership, and he doesn't even know where he is. I'm not sure he was. <laughs> <laughs> in any way responsible for what happened or, or the, the machinations of what it, campaign suspended what when it is amazing well, that he had right. basically nothing in play like in a number of these states he, he had never done any campaigning didn't have staff no. on the ground and still and still won yeah it makes no sense good point COVID 19 <laughs> <laughs> well i think the other other uh, the other point phil made there is that, that bernie has to get better at that right i mean if he wants to win this nomination if he wants to get more than this 35 percent he's got to start start building bridges and and i don't think that means he has to compromise on his agenda and what he believes in but he's got to start building that it can't just be that his supporters are, are fanatics and and he has this you know depth with them it's got to be breadth as well he's got to find ways to reach out to more of the democratic party and have them get excited for him um, otherwise, it's going to be really difficult to to overtake Biden. Oh, God. Yeah. Do you think Bloomberg dropped out because that video uh, was released of him licking his fingers and, and <laughs> touching the food? That's my bet. That <laughs> seems the most <laughs> likely scenario. He's I really do. Yeah. Creepy, disgusting yeah. old man. Ugh. That was really awful. Yeah, I didn't I didn't like that. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the, the, yeah, I, I find it incredibly <laughs> depressing. I've joked about this a minute ago, but I do find it incredibly depressing that the three remaining major candidates are all like 78 yeah. year old men. 
it's <laughs> it's such a reflection on where we are politically and that we yeah we you know we say we want change and then all we do is look for the oldest candidate we could find yeah. so well uh, should we talk beer yes let's phil why don't you start us off uh so i'm i'm having a beer from proclamation um proclamation ale company i was gonna say brewing company but so i've had a number of beers from proclamation i i like their stuff generally this is their ethereus ipa um it's really nice it's uh what you know when i first tasted i wasn't sure and as i've I've had more of it it's got the all the classic stuff the citrusy it's it's uh it's it's not as dry as some of the other ipas that i've been having it's a little i don't know what would you how do you describe not dry it's juicy maybe i don't wet wet. (laughs) moist <laughs> it's it's malty. It's really nice. It's really nice. It's not the kind of world class beer like I've had a few of um, recently, but it's it's very it's it's a a really good a really good beer. Mm, that sounds good, mm-hmm. Nick. What do you enjoy? Um, so you said we didn't have that. We had this with Tom after the podcast, correct? Right, but not on the podcast. Not yeah. on the podcast. Which you're too we, you were too drunk to remember it, Nick. That's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> often happens. Um, yeah. So I am having a neblina from Casa Humilde which is out of Chicago. Um, it's a juicy pale ale. Um, this is surprisingly good. Uh, it has a little bit of sweetness to it. It's very effer- uh, effervescent. It almost has kind of a, a champagne quality to it. Um, I like this a lot. I, I like um, almost like a, like a really, really light cider kind of thing. Um, Ooh, I like that. I, I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. A surprising amount, if you will. That's great. That sounds mm-hmm. good. That's a good review, Nick. <laughs> so as, as I mentioned, I'm out in Colorado. And let me just say that uh, Colorado is doing just some fantastic stuff with beer. I mean, there's so many small breweries that are fantastic. It reminds me a lot of Chicago, but very different. A lot more IPAs, a lot of really, I don't know, just creative stuff going on. And so what I'm having tonight uh, is a chocolate cherry Yeti uh, from Great Divide Brewery, which is out of uh, Denver, Colorado. It's an imperial stout with cherries and cacao. Oh, it is. And it, I'm telling you, it is, it is perfect. Uh, it's, you know, it's nice and wintry because we, you know, we've been skiing the last few days, but it also is lighter. Uh, just a hint of the cherry and the chocolate. Um, great Divide is a, is a great brewery. And they were really one of the early ones that were starting to do the craft beers, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and they're still making good beers. So I, yeah, this is, I'm, I know spring is coming, but I'm going to continue to enjoy these Imperial Stouts until it hits 60. Then I'll make a transition. So. <laughs> I'm sure you know what you're talking about, but the idea of chocolate and cherry in a beer sounds terrible to oh. me. No, it's, it's really good, right? It just gives a little sweetness and it's not too much. It's not, it's not like a fruity beer. It's just a little bit of that sweetness. Mm. Um, and oh, it does. Yeah, it is just, it's delightful. But you're you also really like wine coolers, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. <laughs> you're a white a white claw kind of girl, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, like I said at the beginning, um, you can find us on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, search for Barstool Politics on there, and you will find all of our reviews. Speed round. Oh, speed round, Nick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to start off with uh, Afghanistan. So last week, the United States and the Taliban signed a historic agreement, which set into motion the potential of a full withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan Afghanistan, and could pave the way to ending America's longest war. Uh, The agreement outlines a series of commitments from the United States and the Taliban, including laying out a 14-month timetable for the withdrawal of all military forces of the United States, its allies, and coalition partners. President Trump told reporters, uh, he would be uh, he would be meeting personally with the Taliban leaders in the not too distant future. Uh, following the signing of the agreement, Trump did talk via telephone with the Taliban's chief negotiator and one of its founding members on Tuesday amid reports that the Taliban had resumed violence in Afghanistan days after the agreement. Uh, Trump said, quote, I spoke to the leader of the Taliban today. We had a good conversation. We have agreed. There is no violence. Don't want violence. <laughs> we will we will see what happens. Later in the day, and this is my favorite, he said, quote, the relationship is very good that I have with the mullah. Um, end quote. That's That was it. Um, Phil, are you surprised that the Taliban would go back on its word and engage in violence after they signed this agreement? Shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this 
quote unquote peace deal lasted less than two days, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, so this is all just bizarre <laughs> to me. I mean, the 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 agreement, the the deal agreed to release five thousand Taliban pris- like prisoners that the U.S. had. I I, I mean. I guess here's what's weird about it to me. It seems that Trump wants to get out of Afghanistan, right? He's he's willing to basically do whatever. I'm, I'll release Taliban prisoners. I'll do whatever to get out of it. We, we haven't been included the Afghan government in this negotiation. That is in and of itself weird. The Afghan government is our ally in this situation. So we're we're negotiating with the Taliban, but not with with the Afghan government. Um, the, the phone call that Trump made uh, wasn't reported to the American press. The way, the way that broke was that the Taliban tweeted about the phone call from <laughs> President Trump. That is, so anyway, I guess what I come around to is it seems like Trump just wants to get out and he's desperate to find this deal. Like, let's just do it then. Let's just get out. We're not including <laughs> Afghanistan in the negotiations anyway. The Taliban's not going to live up to their negotiations. So either we either need to be committed to it or let's just go and quit trying to find the pretense of getting the Taliban to agree to something they're not going to agree to something they're not reputable you know this is not a, a negotiating partner that you can count on in the end so so the the attempt to find some agreement with them seems like a weird pretense or a rear a weird uh like um i don't know prerequisite for ending the war um I mean, I think it puts a a weird sense of legitimacy to it. But realistically, if you look at it from a from a historical perspective, the the conditions and the way that this deal is organized is almost exactly the same way that the U.S. dealt with the North North Vietnamese in Vietnam. There were almost no conditions that said the Vietnamese needed to uh, the North Vietnamese needed to stop uh, attacking the South. They were allowed to keep their troops in the South. And the only way that the South Vietnamese government found out about it was they found documents in a, a Viet Cong bunker that talked about a general ceasefire. Like it's 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 amazing to me the parallels between the two. And realistically, I I, I get it. You know, from a, a geopolitical perspective, there has to be some sort of attempt to make it look like we give a shit about the Afghan government and the Afghan people. Which we don't. Realistically, there was a, an attack on Afghan troops uh, at a border crossing. I think it was yesterday or something that the U.S. retaliated uh, with. But there's uh, no halt to the actual peace deal. Uh, and, you know, the the um, uh, Defense Department and the military said, well, we'll see what happens. If there's any more aggression, we'll, we'll assess the situation then. They don't care. They just want everybody out. But if there's some sort of deal on the table, it's not our fault. There's only so much that we can do. We're not going to spend expend any more blood, right. sweat, or tears to to deal with this. And you know that's it's that's geopolitics for you. And what a terrible deal, right? Where you you're now in a situation where like, well, we'll let you have a little bit of violence, but let's see how much violence. I mean, the deal was no violence, right? You had a week. Let's try this this week period where nobody commits violence. And if the Taliban is already breaking the deal a couple days into the deal. There's no question that as soon as the United States withdraws its troops, it will go do exactly what it wants to do and attack the Afghan government. So, I mean, Trump's in a really difficult position here because just like you said, Nick, like Vietnam, there's no easy way out of here without looking like you're just either walking away or losing. Yet there's no political will to engage in aggressive conflict again in Afghanistan. So what do you do? You muddle through and you hope to find an agreement. And, and the Afghan, you know, the, the Taliban knows this. Uh, it's 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 miserable. It's terrible. And it's it's embarrassing for the U.S. government. But I don't know how you avoid it other than saying we're going to have a perpetual presence in Afghanistan. Do you think I mean, to, to, the Vietnam analogy is really, really good. And and I, mean, I think of, you know, Els, Daniel Ellsberg and the quagmire myth and his whole argument with Vietnam was that the reason we stayed for so long and kept upping the troop numbers was not because we wanted to win, but because we wanted to avoid losing. Right. Which is Correct, what, what yeah. we're doing. Um, but I, I kind of wonder, do, do you think Americans care anymore? I mean, there's this there's this incentive for presidents to not be the one who loses the war. But I can't imagine that many Americans would view this as losing at this point. It's just finally getting out of a place that we should have been out of a long time ago. Um, so the, 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 it seems like the lessons that are drawn out of Vietnam or out of this, you know, we, we need to avoid uh, losing. I don't know that they apply here. I I don't know. I think that's a that's a, a a political football that neither side necessarily wants to be responsible for. On the right, uh if 
you know, you said we're leaving. We don't really care what happens. Do what you will with the country. You know, we've spent 20 years, the better part of 20 years, uh, sending troops over there to, uh, you know, protect American democracy and die for us. And that'll all be for nothing in terms of the Democrats. Uh, you know, it's the same. We're we're leaving a vulnerable, a vulnerable population, uh, you know, to the 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 whims of a, a tyrannical government, which we at one point, quote unquote, freed them from. Uh, and then it's a human rights catastrophe. So I think the best thing that you can do is muddle through it, pretend like you give a shit. And then when everything goes to pot, you know, it's not our fault. We tried. You know, there's only so much that we can do. I think that's the fear, Nick. You're right. It's the human rights catastrophe because the I mean, the Taliban has not moderated their position one bit. Mm -mm. Uh, they still believe. I mean, they now they're better at negotiating with with the Western powers and they understand how to do that. But their belief system is exactly the same. So if you know if the United States pulls out, there's going to be human rights violations. There's going to be a similar attempt to reinstall their regime, and and that mars the the many years, the 18 years, the blood treasure, all of that. And that's that's something that would be difficult to swallow for a president. The weird thing I, that, you know, I'll speak sort of as uh, I'm, I'm not a realist, but I'll, I'll speak sort of as a realist here, which is that the, the weird thing is before September 11th, we didn't give a shit, right? The, the Taliban yeah. had been committing human rights forever, violations yeah. for a long time, and we didn't care. The reason we got into this war was to get Osama bin Laden and to break up Al Qaeda after September 11th, which we accomplished. And yeah. so to, to stay there now because of human rights violations, um, I, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not arguing that we should have, you know, uh, that we should, you know, endorse human rights violations, but it's a weird logic to come back around to when that wasn't the reason we went in, in the first place. Yeah, I, I agree. It, uh, it, it's the whole thing it, it's similar to Vietnam. There's no easy solution to this. So it's, and it's, it's, it's just going to be an ugly finish. We're not, it's not about winning the war. It's about winning the peace. That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, let's talk about something a little more uplifting. Uh, Nick, it's been a week and the international community still hasn't solved the coronavirus. Uh, you know, they've had a week. Yeah. In the U.S., the Trump administration has not been on its A game, offering mixed messages, contradicting data and more than a few falsehoods, mostly from the president himself. Most specifically, this week, the president repeatedly, repeatedly stated that a vaccine for the virus would be available soon when it's likely to take over a year before they would have a vaccine. In addition, just a few days after promising that the Trump administration would be, quote, aggressively transparent about its response to the coronavirus outbreak, the White House held a press conference where it banned the press from any audio or video recording of the briefing. They could only take notes and pictures. This is stunning, right? I just can't believe this happened. Uh, this has led some to suggest that the White House is treating the rapidly expanding coronavirus as a public relations problem instead of a public health crisis. In other coronavirus news, Iran has announced that it will temporarily release 54,000 people from prisons and deploy hundreds of thousands of health workers in an effort to contain the world's deadliest coronavirus outbreak outside of China. How do you uh, temporarily release 54,000? Where do they go? You just make sure, you just tell them they make sure that they come back. <laughs> you better come well, back now. Oh, the death toll in Iran has risen to 92 with nearly 3,000 cases having been reported. The, uh, the death toll from the, the coronavirus virus in the United States has climbed to nine. And the CDC said it has heightened concerns and is urging local communities to begin to thinking about ways to stop the virus from spreading. Phil, uh, what's your read on all these developments? Uh, so I, it, first of all, I think the death toll is, is climbed today. I think it's like 10 or 11 oh. now. So oh, wow. I, it, it's, um, I mean, uh, not to be bleak, but I mean, there's at some point we cross over into being a pandemic, right? And a pandemic is just a virus. It's an outbreak that is no longer contained. And and we're not calling it that. But that's where we're headed, right? I, arguably, we're there already as cases are, are spreading. Half the countries in the world have cases. They're popping up increasingly across the United States. It's going to multiply. Um yeah, I mean, when you look around the world at countries that have handled it, the ones that have handled it successfully are the ones who have been transparent and open about it, right? It's been the South Koreas who have uh, abundant testing available, the Chinas and the Irans who try to squash this and make it seem better than it actually is. It, now, I, I'm not comparing the Trump administration's response to China and Iran, right? But it's, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to feel about um the Trump administration's response. I, you know, when I watched the press conference last week, when they first talked about it, uh, I was encouraged by the fact that Trump and Pence let 
health officials speak. When questions were asked, they, you know, they would say something quick, but then they would hand it over to the CDC officials or the National Institute of Health people. That part's encouraging to me. The the part of, of Trump continually coming back around to there's going to be a virus. It's not a big deal. We have it contained. The fact that he is contradicting them in that press conference, you know, the the health uh, the 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 experts would say this is going to dramatically increase in in numbers right more people are going to get this and then immediately trump would come and say we've got it wrapped up it's going to decline that's that's not good <laughs> that's not good right <laughs> what you need is transparency and clarity and and you know you can hope that the bureaucracy holds holds up in this but um yeah i mean it's not a good time to have someone who is mostly concerned with self image as the president of the united states mm-hmm. I, um, I, I'm going to play devil's advocate as I normally do with the two of you. Um, (laughs) realistically, I I think that there's, there's a case to be made that this isn't that fundamentally different from several other flu strains that, you know, are, are, can be considered pandemics because they're all, they're, you know, across the world as it is. That's, you know, the, the nature of globalization and, and global travel and global trade. Um, uh, COVID-19, not you, Phil, but the actual one, um, right now has about a 3% mortality rate, which isn't, you know, it's not markedly higher than than any other. Uh, the standard flu, which, you know, kills thousands of people a year. Um, I I can see the the thought process within the Trump administration, certainly Trump himself, saying that, this isn't necessarily going to be the pandemic that people think it's going to be. This is an outbreak. This isn't contagion. It's not something like that, but it's being presented as something like that, which realistically, again, it's, it's a new strain. We don't necessarily know what it's going to do. You can't let it run rampant, but at the same time, I think there's a balance between the coverage that we have been getting and the reality of the situation. Places like China, places that are exceptionally um, non-responsive and non-transparent Yes, it's going to spread. The mortality rate is going to be higher. I think it was <laughs> the statistic was eight percent of Iranian leadership has the coronavirus right now. It's <laughs> insane. Um, but yeah, I, I I I have zero faith in bureaucracy, um, so I don't think they're going to be ones to be able to contain it. Anyways, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Like we don't we don't have the capability to to stop it at this point, unless you're going to completely shut down borders and shut down international travel and start quarantining people, you know, in every corner of the country, it's, it's going to happen. I just, I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be as bad as people think or nearly as bad as people think it's going to be. Well, the thing that I worry about is that there's, there could be a difference between it being a mild outbreak in the United States and it being a really terrible one. And so much of that will depend upon public policy, right? This is where you know, the deep state matters. This is where the experts and, you know, the CDC, the people who know what they're know what they're doing are allowed to do their job. And I think all presidential administrations play the PR game. You know, Trump is not the first one to do this, but you also hope that behind the scenes, they let the experts do their work. And, and my fear with the Trump administration is if everything is going through them and they're vetting it for the political implications, that could undermine the public policy effects. And the other concern is that Trump is is removed a lot of experts because he's skeptical of them. Uh, you know, is, is the United States in the best possible position to confront this? And, and I don't know. Um, you hope they are. You hope that, uh, you know, while the administration is trying to trying to tweak the margins and make it look good, that they're also empowering those who know what they're doing. And, and we'll, I mean, we'll find out. That's that's the reality of it. I, I Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're you're right, Nick, in that I think there's there's a chance that we're overreacting to this, that it's not that big, that it's been already circulating in communities and the death rate is not as high as we think. And, but there's also the chance that it's not, that we're not overreacting that, that, that in fact, you know, if this is really contagious and becomes widespread, 3% mortality rate isn't bad, but if it spreads to the entire community of America, right, that's 10 million people who would die. That, so the, I mean, there's the, and that's where the, um, I, I'm not arguing, I don't, I'm not wanting people to panic. I don't think that's likely, you know, that's not the likely outcome. I think you're right, Nick, there's a chance that this is, uh, you know, a, essentially a really bad flu season. Um, but I, I do think that the, that the, uh, the, the um, bureaucracy 
can make it. I'm, I'm less skeptical of bureaucracy than you. I think that's where the testing and whatnot really comes in. And it, that's where it feels like this has been botched in some way. And it's unclear to me what, right? Like the, there were other governments that had successful tests that were available that the U.S. government decided not to use. If we had been aggressively testing from the beginning, then we would have been better able to contain the virus. And so why that hasn't happened, what, ha- like we, uh, most public health people that I've heard that I've read or, or or listened to seem to think that this has been a botched rollout. That doesn't mean that it was Trump that was at fault. I think there will be a, at some point an examination of what went wrong. Why weren't we ready, ready to respond more quickly to this? Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll learn some lessons from it. But um, yeah, I, we, who, who knows? So <clears throat> a quick personal story on this. Um, Nick, I, coronavirus? I personally don't, but um, okay. I, I don't know. I could have it right now. I won't know, but I'll probably be okay anyways. Um, so my my thoughts on bureaucracy, I mean, I mean, that's kind of a longstanding thing on this podcast, but over the past few days, I, I work for a company that uh, does translations for websites, documents, government work, uh, you know, businesses, things like that. Um, we noticed that the CDC had none of their information translated into any other language than Spanish. So the bureaucracy within the CDC itself, which is not the the vast, vast majority, are not appointed by the Trump administration, are, you know, uh, uh, um, career employees who want to do their best. Either they're not, they're overwhelmed by what's going on, or nobody is paying attention to that. On top of that, we talked to our local congressperson, um, who had no response to it whatsoever. And then the day after that we brought this up, saying that we wanted to do this for the CDC and put this information out there to more populations, all of a sudden they started putting information out through their email about best practices of what to do. I, I, don't, think, work. I don't think the government is capable of doing it mm-hmm. at this point. I, I don't think it's the administration. I just don't think the, the overall either local, state, or national government so- is able to do it. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally get that critique, but government in general is capable of it, right? You look at South Korea, which is a democratic government sure. who has rolled out extensive testing. They've tested 100,000 people, whereas the U.S. government has managed to test 500 total. So oh, yeah. it can be done. So, but yes. it's the question of, you know, where, you know, what went wrong in this case? Was it... You know, because the, the the Trump administration did cut staffing levels at the higher higher you know at the higher ups in the in the CDC. So is it was it something that was decided at the Trump administration level? Was it issue? I mean, this is you know after September 11th, there was a a major analysis of what went wrong in the intelligence community. Sure. Hopefully, we'll we'll do some of that as well. How do we learn from our mistakes? How do we respond more quickly? Um, I mean, Trump today was blaming the Obama administration for the fact Obviously. that testing wasn't going quicker. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, no, yeah. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I absolutely believe that government is capable of doing it. I'm not sure our particular bureaucratic system is capable of doing it. We don't have the the domestic will to to undertake something like this, which is unfortunate. But and maybe we should just leave release a bunch of prisoners like Iran. That's a good model, right? That I think that's a good middle ground. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Jumping in a related story. So last Friday, President Trump announced that he would nominate Republican John Radcliffe as the next director of national intelligence, turning to a staunch political ally after dismissing his previous acting intelligence director after he raised questions about Russia's election interference. In a tweet, uh, Trump called Radcliffe, quote, an outstanding man of great talent. Uh, whom he had hoped to nominate last year. Now, if you remember, Trump attempted to nominate Radcliffe in July after his first intelligence director, Dan Coats, left the administration. But the former U.S. attorney encountered stiff resistance in Congress, where lawmakers on both sides of the aisle raised questions about his credentials and whether he had padded his resume. The Republican congressman was widely described as the least qualified person to ever be proposed for the powerful position of overseeing 17 government agencies. The only thing that Ratcliffe has going for him is that he's dis- that despite his many deficiencies, he is likely more qualified than the acting director, Richard Grinnell, <laughs> who Trump appointed just under two weeks ago. Uh, Grinnell, the ambassador to Germany, uh, has even less experience than Radcliffe. Uh, Phil, this fits a pattern we've noted of late that Trump is surrounding himself with loyalists in lieu of individuals who have years of experience in the field. That's cool, right? That's good. <laughs> it's cool if you're Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, so this I think this this is this case uh, is 
illustrative, illustrative. Wait, how do you illustrative? I'm going to go with illustrative. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this, this shows the problem with wanting loyalists in a position. It's easy to see it in this case, in that if you want a loyalist that that's in charge of intelligence, right. And the test is, are you going to support whatever Trump says? Um, it's not a great idea to have someone who's in charge of gathering intelligence on North Korea's nuclear capabilities or Iran's nuclear capabilities, um, whose primary concern isn't sort of national security or accuracy, but is instead, you know, fitting a narrative that the president approves of. Um, that should be deeply concerning for people. You want someone who's really good, who knows, you know, what they're talking about, um, who will give the president the honest truth about situations. Now, it, it's particularly concerning or it's easy to see the concern in an intelligence situation. But this is what's going on in all sorts of organizations throughout the government where Trump is appointing loyalists or is using, you know, uh, acting directors because he either can't or doesn't want to put someone through the uh, approval process um, for the Senate. I mean, I, I come back around to, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if you do this in your foreign policy class, Bill, but the difference, you know, when I teach about like groupthink, um, what, the difference between like JFK and LBJ, and you can see it in the way they handled the the Vietnam War, for instance, and that JFK wanted people around him. He, he had people who would play devil's advocate. He wanted people to sort of present him with the different options. Whereas LBJ was sort of this bully, right? Who like berated people who disagreed with him. Um, and the end result is that you don't get, you don't make clear decisions because you're not getting the right information. You're getting the information you want. And so, yeah, I mean, this is really, this is deeply concerning, but it, it is also, I think, representative of, this is not a tr uniquely Trump problem. Uh, this has been other presidents as well. Trump has sort of done it more extensively than other presidents have in the past. Nick, what's your read? Um, I don't. My opinion isn't much different from uh, from Phil's. There was yeah, a yeah. point during the administration that you know you talk about draining the swamp and getting rid of uh, unnecessary bureaucracy and the ability to run more efficiently. And then as time went on, more and more of these positions uh, became vacant or filled with acting directors who either stayed on too long on a permanent basis, semi-permanent basis, or were gone again within the within a, a matter of weeks or months. Um, now it's getting to a crazy level where it seems like they're running out of people to put in these exceptionally important positions. Um, the fact that you have to go back to the well and try and bring someone else into the fold again when there seems to be no one else that will take the position, uh, given the travails and, and uh, complications that come with the administration, is exceptionally problematic. Um, and I, this is one of those positions that I think you can't afford to fill in with someone who is just going to you know, placate you and, and give you the answers that you want. Well, I think that's right. And we've always there's always a sense of loyalty in every presidential administration. So we shouldn't pretend that Trump is the first that's Phil noted that's done this. But but your loyalty has also been connected to somebody who knows what they're doing. Uh, and you would find qualified people and you would put them in charge and they may not be an expert in intelligence. I'm thinking about Leon Panetta, who, you know, was secretary of defense. And then was he CIA? Yeah, CIA. I mean, but he was a smart guy who was a loyal Democrat who you knew you could put in charge of an organization and he could surround himself with smart people and he could run a big organization like that. You know, what Trump is doing is just choosing loyalty without expertise. And, and the reality is that government is very, very specialized now. And you can't put somebody who has no clue or is only going to speak what the president wants to hear. I mean, this, there are going to be major, major issues. Circle back to our previous topic with coronavirus. You want the experts telling the president the truth, even if it is uncomfortable. And my fear with Trump is that he doesn't want to hear bad news. Um, I mean, I think they even said today or this last week, somebody was at Department of Defense or, or whoever it was was saying not to, to give Trump certain information about something that's going on. That, that should scare us all if, if they're trying to hide information from the president because he's going to be upset about it. It's It's just... Not not the way to run a good government. Well, and, and this is a this is a crisis of Trump's creating. I mean, it, it would be hard to replace this position with less than a year to go in the Trump administration anyway, because who wants to give up their current full time job to do this for eight months or whatever? But it's yeah. also that, that Trump fired the previous guy because, as you said, he it wasn't that he 
I mean, the thing he did was that he briefed Congress on Russian interference in this election. And that was the thing that Trump was unwilling to accept. Right? We should want Congress briefed on what the intelligence community is learning about Russian involvement in elections. Russian involvement in elections, it was, you know, it, that they're trying to boost Trump. Also, that they're trying to boost Bernie. All of this is it's important yeah. to know this. Um, and so to fire the intelligence you know, chief for revealing intelligence that is, you know, that you don't like to be revealed is it, I, all of that is, is, you know, it, yeah. it, it points to the problem. It's also, a, again, a problem of Trump's creating in this situation. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's finish up today. We're going to finish on a, uh, we're going to evaluate two recent stage performances. I'm going to ask you guys to decide who had the better performance. <laughs> Our candidates are President Donald Trump and Jill Biden, the, vi uh, the wife of former Vice President Joe Biden. Let's start with the president, who after finishing his speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, uh, President Trump hugged and kissed an American flag on the side of the stage and repeatedly mouthed the words, I love you, baby, while embracing the flag. <laughs> we tweeted out the video of this earlier this week, and, and you just have to go and watch it because it is odd. Like, he says it a bunch of times. I love you, baby. Um, all right. Challenging Trump's I love you, baby routine is Jill Biden. The incident occurred on Super Tuesday, just as former Vice President Joe Biden was delivering his victory speech in Los Angeles. Suddenly, a protester rushed the stage wielding a let dairy die placard. Uh, with the vegan protester just a few feet from her husband, Jill Biden jumped into action and pushed the protester away. About 10 seconds later, another anti-dairy industry protester stormed the stage. Reacting with lightning speed, the former second lady swung around, extended her arms, grabbed her by the wrist, and then blocked her with her, a stiff arm. This was also fantastic to see. So I ask you gentlemen, who had the better stage performance? Phil, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. So um, Trump's CPAC performance uh, is really unique and worth you know worth <laughs> actually i should i guess if the reason so here's the thing i'm not going to vote for for trump and and i'm not going to vote for trump what? for a couple of reasons um, <laughs> one is that uh jill biden's performance is just impressive <laughs> to be, her, <laughs> be able to uh physically uh so that that her her performance is impressive the other one is like all sequels uh, Trump's hugging of the American flag. This has happened before, and and it lacks a little yes. originality, right? We've seen this. He's going back to the to the well one too many times. Um, you know, the the a, a potential uh, you know first lady like you know physically uh, taking down um, protesters is is yeah, that's a little more refreshing. I, I'm I'm going to go for go for that one. I, I'm going to say who I'm going to put in third is um security officials <laughs> this has happened with bernie <laughs> right. campaign it's happened with biden this is it's kind of unbelievable that that people protesting cows well not cows protesting on behalf of cows have made it onto yes, multiple yes, candidate yeah. stages yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> nick nick where are you where are you leading uh well you know me i i always love a good flag hugging um <laughs> you know you you can you just you never get tired of it and you know the people who yeah. do get tired of it are obviously communists so exactly you know, whatever, it's <laughs> but um yeah the biden's man that that was an impressive feat of physical prowess i'm not gonna lie she's, she's just like a linebacker it was great <laughs> yeah. i my my thought is that she uh didn't um want a protester getting close enough to realize that her husband uh had soiled himself but um <laughs> That that's just me. Either way, it was impressive. So that would be well, yeah, yeah. A couple thoughts here. One, I, I vote Joe Biden as well because and for mainly because she responded so instantly. When you're in that position and somebody jumps up at you, you don't know if they're if it's a terrorist or if it's a, a you know a vegan protester. And there's a big difference there, right? And, no, and her not. response wasn't wasn't to be shocked, <laughs> but was to instantly go into action and then grabbed. The protester and the, the pictures are fantastic because like she's all in biden's kind of standing there not sure what's going on so yeah for her like instant reaction to to grab and again I, you know when i watching it live nobody had any idea what the protesters were about i love that they're you know anti-dairy this is just this makes the story all the much all the all the better nobody so, knows what any of those protesters want anymore if you were on stage with your <laughs> wife, Bill, and a and a protester stormed the stage, I have faith that you would react just as quick, but you would have like dived for cover. <laughs> it would have been like, yes. leave me, leave me alone. <laughs> I, am, I am easily startled. And yes, that would exactly be my reaction. My arms would be flailing. Uh, no, so so impressive. Good for a Joe Biden. 
for responding. I, I like your critique, Phil, that 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 uh, uh, Trump has gone to the hug flagging, flag hugging before. The but I will flagging? say it's still <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but the fact this time was another level, right? It was really bizarre. I mean, it's just it's this hyper patriotism that's so transparent, but yet people love it, right? I mean. It's obviously he's playing you, right? He's going over to flag hugging, but people just eat this up. So it's I don't know. I, I vote Bill uh, Jill Biden, but the, the the you know Trump is also bizarre. Hey, so. You don't see the Democrats hugging that flag. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> for reason, for reason, Nick. For reason. Right, we're not going to bother with the full five minutes on that one. Um, hold, please. Um, I think I got it. I think I got it. Yep. I think I got it. I got it. Um, <laughs> Bill runs away. Um, anyways, guys, um, like I said at the beginning, uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at BarstoolPaul, P-O-L, to see what we're up to. <clears throat> or if you have beer suggestions or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but- Bill has now donned his coronavirus mask. Hold on. How do you do that? Where's print screen? Hold hold on. Page down. Never mind. I'll figure it out later. Anyways. I'm agreeing with this thing, Nick. (laughs) I got as far as Twitter. Uh, Facebook, uh, at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers that we try can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, Look for Barstool Politics on there. Um, the podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Um, and then our merch line you can find on teespring.com. You'll find direct links uh, right on our social media channels. Uh, so definitely check that out. Um, it's really great stuff. Um, anything else, guys? No, it's just fun one. Awesome. Well, Billy Joe, COVID, always good to talk to you. We we will see you next week. Cheers, Nick. Cheers. Shut up.